HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. I'm your host, Severing, calling in from the Adirondack region of New York and calling Michael Schneidel from Little Keys Farm down in Pennsylvania. And I can't pronounce your county, Schneidel. <laughs> well, you got my last name pretty close. It's Scheidel, and uh, the county is pronounced Schuylkill. Schuylkill. Yes, the Schuylkill, as in the Schuylkill River, runs right through Philadelphia. So how far, so what valley or what watershed are you in? We are close to uh, Chesapeake watershed. Got it. And, and how, far away from, how far away from Philadelphia are you? Um, as the crow flies, about 50 miles. Um, oh. 50 or 60 miles. So it would take us um, maybe an hour and a half to get to Philadelphia from here. But you don't go there very often, or, or you no, don't go um, No, we don't. We don't do any business in Philadelphia. Um, kind of part of my, our goal in the past couple of years has been to really um, bring things tighter to home, closer to home, really. Well, so I've been, um, I've been reading through your, philo- your philosophy and, and some of the practices that you engage in around your goals um, of sharing food with the less fortunate and having, it sounds like, really very strong principles behind your business. Maybe you could introduce your farm and, um, and talk a little bit about those principles. Okay, sure. Um, now you're risking losing your audience because I, I tend to ramble, so um, be warned. Um, well, you mentioned... Um, Serving less fortunate, we are kind of a, a standard, typical, chemical-free vegetable, flower, and herb operation, but we also offer um, good steward shares where um, some of our paying CSA members can um, throw some money into a good steward bank or actually just um, um, purchase a share for a family um, who normally wouldn't be able to 
participate in a, in a, a CSA. Um, and we, as a family, sponsor a couple shares a year as well. Um, and I just kind of have always felt, ever since I got involved in uh, growing vegetables for a living, that um, in a way, um, it's elitist. Um, organic food can be sometimes elitist, and I don't. I never felt comfortable with that because I have a, a social science background. So. I kind of, at least in our own farm, wanted to be able to integrate uh, those that wouldn't be able to afford it normally. Um, we have um, high tunnels. Uh, it's, uh, we're a very small farm, so we try and you know jam as much in as we can where we can, um, and also maintain the integrity of the soil. Um, we have a 20-week main season uh, for from the beginning of June through October. Um, and then we offer a fall and winter CSA. We service um, a few restaurants. And we are actually on the cusp of having our first uh, farm-to-table dinner here at the farm. In a couple weeks, um, we're starting off real small. <clears throat> we're doing a really good partnership with a, uh, a great young uh, creative chef um, who's turned around a local restaurant around here um, it's going to be just a, a fine meal. Everything produced on our farm, uh, from our pork to our chicken and vegetables and herbs and all that good stuff. Um, but also it's going to be a, a very uh, simple fundraiser. We're going to raise some money for our um, local soup kitchen as well. So um, so if I haven't rambled okay. too much, maybe you want to fire no, no, some questions No, no, you're rambling very much on topic. And, and I think it speaks to the dynamic of, the peri, the like, um, the circle around the city, the yep. kinds of food communities that you're dealing with. You have people who are willing to pay extra to support others, and people who are willing to pay for a fancy dinner. But then you also have a lot of people for whom the prices that it really takes to raise food are are unaffordable. Mm-hmm. Well, good point. Like, the, the, I like how you said the price, the cost of, or the price that it takes to grow food. That's one thing I think is. Our biggest, one of our, that and weeds, but besides weeds, our biggest struggle is really convincing people that we certainly are getting a fair price for our food. It might look more expensive, but we're a very, trans, very, very transparent farm. So I say, you know, if you want to, you know, gripe about the cost of a quart of heirloom tomatoes, come on out and experience the heartbreak it takes to get them to the table. And that justifies it usually, you know, um, the amount of work it truly takes when you grow from seed in all ways straight through to the final product. You know, we don't buy in any other farm's produce. We don't uh, buy in transplants. We do everything by seed. So it's, it's hard to get people to understand um, that we're doing it really from scratch. So, And then once they do find out about that, they, they, they stop complaining? Um. No, <laughs> I guess not. They just hear me, you know, gripe and maybe maybe snap at them and say, hey, you know, you have no idea. And then we smile and go our ways. And usually they come back. I'm, I'm um, honest as the day is long, and sometimes that is, um, you know, detrimental, and sometimes it works in my favor. But um, I think I have a good way to, you know, convince people that it is a, a fair price and it is, um, you know, um, what I always tell people is food is finite. It's not this, you look in the grocery store and tilt your head and it's just this aisle that goes on forever. 
It's not. Food is, is absolutely finite, and you need to understand that. So we don't have an infinite number of, you know, sun gold cherry tomatoes on the table, um, you know, depending on the season and, you know, availability, it's just not going to be there at a certain, you know, time. So, yeah. So um, you're, you're um, already pretty well established in your business, but I felt like maybe um, you could make a little bit of talk about how it was getting started, and especially as there are increasing numbers of young farmers deciding to go neither naturally grown nor organic, but to mm-hmm. have organic practices, um, if you could reflect a little bit on how, how that's been for you. Okay, well, um, first of all, I feel like I'm just beginning. Um, this is our uh, technically our seventh year selling vegetables, where the first year it was literally in the back of a Subaru, you know, um, showing up at a farmer's market saying, hey, can we sell a farmer's market that had no other options other than conventional uh, vegetables? Uh, hey, can we sell our produce to where we are now? So I... I uh, although maybe we've got a few years under our belt, I really, really feel like I am, you know, I actually tell people if, if farming is kindergarten through Ph.D., I was held back in kindergarten for about five years, and I just graduated the first grade. <laughs> and I'm serious about that. But anyway, um, we are neither certified organic nor certified naturally grown. Um, I think there's a lot of hanky-panky in both of those um, um, labels. So we've chosen to just be extremely conscientious to our customers, extremely transparent. I tell anyone, if you ever want to see how we grow, uh, please come out. Please ask me if I spray, what I spray, et cetera, et cetera. I use nothing that's um, not OMRI listed, um, you know, and so I think as uh, you know, or, organics continues to grow. Um, I mean, that's a good thing. But I think as a lot more people are getting into it, they're hearing people say, "I don't need a sticker to make me feel comfortable." I actually just posted a blog on our website about that. Maybe it was a month ago or, or so. That I'd much rather trust someone that I know than a sticker, you know, that has a couple letters on it. Uh, to be, that's my philosophy anyway. Um, and I also encourage, uh, we have, you know, encountered quite a few young farmers that are, you know, coming to us and asking for, you know, advice or experience or whatnot. And one thing I often tell folks is, um, <laughs> don't do what we're doing, um, only because, um, it's everyone and their uncles doing it. And it's, it's a very tough way to make a living. Find a niche. So, you know, everybody starts with a vegetable CSA because vegetables are, in the, in the outset, um, you know, somewhat easy to grow. You put a bunch of seed or starts in the ground, and you're going to get some, some results. Um, but to find a niche and fill those gaps that exist, like in our community, for example, um, someone just started um, recently raising a lot more pasture-based uh, meats, and that just wasn't existent here. We still have room for, definitely have plenty of room for artisanal cheeses here, um, honey, berries, the fruits, you know, absolutely. And um, I know we kind of try to do a little bit of it all, but we, there's no way. We can't do, 
we can't handle the demand necessarily for eggs, for example. There's such a in the way we do it, we have an egg mobile and pasture our eggs, our chickens. It's 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 so hard to do when you're doing you know a hundred different other types of vegetables. We have fruits, two small vineyards, and just a whole bunch of other things that it's just not manageable. So it would be encouraging to see young folks coming into um, the marketplace and into the craft, um, really find niches in consulting with existing farms and and, and um, seeing where the gaps are and filling them. We also had another. Um, experienced agriculturalist just start her farm this year or so, and she's doing only a winter CSA, and she does a summer flower CSA, and that I think that's pretty creative, you know, because there's the the demand for fresh produce in the winter time is incredible, um, and the flowers is a niche as well, and now they also um, um, cut hay, but really I think that was a pretty creative way to look at the the um, the food shed and say, hey, there's some room for, you know, there's already, um, it's already a wash with vegetables, for example, let's maybe try something different, so. And so, um, what was your, what was your, or what was her experience in getting land, and what's the, what's the land access story around where you are right now? Like, you're saying, don't everybody do what we're doing, which is something I, I feel, I often worry that we're preparing everyone with a really nice business plan to grow, you know, relatively fancy vegetables for a relatively mm-hmm. um, finite marketplace, even, even though it makes so much sense to focus on vegetables um, and startup, There's also a limit to how many operations that model can sustain. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell, us about, tell us about your land access story and, um, and, how, you chose, and how you chose your place. Well, we started off, um, let's see here. We started off in a small town um, where we used to live, um, always with the dream, you know, to farm. Where eventually I used to work at a university, um, really just felt like um, our, we weren't where we were supposed to be. You know, our vocation was really supposed to be farming. So we always knew, my wife and I always knew that that's where we were headed, um, so we started off with this, ti- you know, a tiny garden, um, and then we had about an acre next door to us um, where it was just a field, and we knew we got along with the, the owners really well. And I just proposed one day, hey, can I plow this? I didn't have it; I had a shovel, and I said, hey, can I, you know, rent this from you? And he said, sure. Once I told him where we were headed in our, our heads and our hearts. Then I traded a, a local orchard, you know, a couple hours on the tractor to just plow this horrendous piece of ground up for a pruning with him for a full day of mine in his in his orchard. So he came out and plowed it up for me, um, and that's kind of how we started. Uh, we were there for, gosh, I think it was two, our first two years where we started off with, like, a 25-share CSA, and the next year was 50 and then, um, in the meantime, we were working on, we had the, the house we live in now and the farm we live on now was owned by a couple that was getting up in age and just simply couldn't manage it. And uh, we met them at church, and they 
had always talked, to, you know, that they were talking that they were ready to get off the farm, and we were talking like we were ready to get on the farm. So we kind of sort of slowly worked with one another till we got to the point where it was, hey, you know, we want this farm. So we initially purchased um, five of the 20 acres, which includes all the buildings and a, um, a pond and, a, you know, a couple acres of uh, field. Um, and then eventually worked towards for the next four years, I believe it was, um, to purchase the rest, the 15 acres up top, we call it, or out back. And that just happened last, um, actually a year ago, in two weeks, it'll be a year, we've owned the entire farm. We rented the back acreage uh, for a couple of years, but then um, eventually purchased uh, just this past year. So, um, Holy moly, that's like a dream story. Well, it, it might sound like one, but boy, I wish I had more time or, or like a live audience of, of faces and people to tell because it was really, it has been an extremely difficult, difficult time because we have, uh, we don't, we didn't inherit any money. We didn't inherit any equipment. We didn't inherit a farm. Um, I have no farmers in my family, so we're not, I'm not a generational agricultural family. So it was extremely, it sounds like it was a dream story. And in retrospect, things have really fallen into place. We've been very blessed with, how, with where we are right now. But it was really, really, really hard. And the relationships sometimes got rocky, and it was really pretty tricky um, to make it all happen. And actually, um, the final piece to, to um, purchase the rest of the farm came together when um, uh, a very initially a, just a, um, a CSA member turned very good family friend uh, with some means helped us with financing purchasing the rest of the acres up top. So it's it all fell together with a whole bunch of different people involved, um, and now we're just working on establishing ourselves firmly um, and paying it all off. That's our goal: is to really. I don't want to end up with farm debt. I don't want to end up, uh, I want to be free and clear, you know, and not leave debt to my children. You know, I'd love to leave a, far, a working farm to them so that, um, you know, maybe they would farm it someday. Well, and, and then they'd be pretty lucky, pretty lucky in, in relative terms and real terms. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they, would have, they will have inherited it, uh, which is, a, you know, kind of an advantage to where we came from. Um, you know, so they would have that benefit, and also we have we have a large family. We just had our ninth child in on July ninth, and they all work. You know, really side by side today. Um, actually, as we speak, um, we're having our one of our CSA pickups here at the farm, and there's about 50, 60 families showing up right now, right now. So I'm enjoying this because I'm avoiding the mayhem, and. Um, all of our kids are out there, you know, they were picking cherry tomatoes and beans, um, watching the, we dug maybe half an acre of potatoes yesterday, and they were all involved in that. Um, so they are growing up in, in the environment where they're going to learn kind of from, they're going to, you know, um, learn it from the ground up, really, you know, not have to intern anywhere or anything um, to learn the basics. They're going to start off with at least the basics in farming, so... Um, I understand your audience is a lot of folks maybe like me 10 years ago 
um, so um, that you know that just didn't have that that opportunity. So yeah. Well, I mean, we all, many of us don't have the opportunity of nine little weeding weeding creatures. <laughs> hey, um, can you um, hang on just a moment, real quick? It's going to take me three seconds. Just a moment, please. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We just had somewhat of an emergency question. <laughs> go ahead. Well, no, I was just I was just kind of marveling at the the, the nine children situation. Oh and yeah, that's yeah. That's a that's lot of work, a, but maybe they do a lot of work too. They do, and you know what's funny is I never looked at it like that. Um, people always would would kind of joke with us. Gee, you have a bunch of tax write-offs, or you have a bunch of uh, farmhands, and I never even considered that until the past couple years when they started being able to do some of the simple farm chores and I thought and care for the animals and on I thought wow there's some you know truth to that <laughs> you know that's that aside from you know taking care of the domestic their domestic chores they're also out there working with us and meeting people and learning how to you know converse with people and kind of be part of the food system it's pretty exciting so I guess one question I have is if you look around in your area is this situation of kind of aging operations and magical neighbors who make deals happen and, you know, a community that goes to church and cares about the future of their place, do you mm-hmm. feel like your um, neighborhood is a, is a strong prospect for people who are looking to live a life quite similar to you? Um, um, I would love to say yes. But we're in a, a really, really, really difficult place for, if you're just talking organic farming uh, or sustainable farming, this is a pretty hard neighborhood. Um, this is a county that's um, a coal county. Um, it's over the first and second mountains on the, on the Kittatinny Ridge. The Appalachian Trail runs through here. So it's, um, I can't say isolated, but it's a, Growing our business has been an extremely difficult uphill climb because there was no one growing like this up here. I was told point blank by a couple of very well-established farmers, you're going to fail. There's no way people are going to buy your stuff and think it's better than mine, blah, blah, blah. But we're just starting to see a turnaround. Um, I think we're in the midst of kind of an awakening up, up here, which is pretty that's very exciting to see. Um, again, it's it's coal region, so um, you know um, folks are a bit well, skeptical. Wait a minute. Let's let's explain what that means because coal region, like um, I, I I um I've been reading about what coal region, like how how um how the economies in coal regions have evolved in this book by Kirkpatrick Sale. Explain to me, in your perspective, why what a coal region means for for a startup farm operation. Um, it might mean um, slim pickings for some really good soil. Um, we're we're fortunate though. We the southern part of our county, which is where we farm and we live, there is no coal, so there's never been mining in the southern 
uh, Schuylkill County. The entire northern half um, was devastated by by coal, and I and I say that, um, but it was also the coal that fired you know the kilns that made us all of our steel and all that stuff. So it really was an incredible you know aid to um, industry, but it really left um, a whole lot um, a lot of um, devastated land. Um, and now with the natural gas drilling, uh, it's starting to, to you know, uh, poke its head around the northern uh, counties as, or part of the county as well. That's an, another concern. Um, whether it's founded or not, we don't know yet. Um, but to me, I guess um, the whole the concept or, or, or the idea um, of living in, in a coal county simply means you've got generational um, uh, generations of families in here, tons of, of immigrant families um, in the past. Uh, the Molly Maguires, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Um, they were kind of um, a rogue band trying to go against big big coal up here. Um, there was a movie, Sean Connery was in it, um, about the Molly Maguires. Um, that took place up here in Schuylkill County. Um, so there's a lot of history up here. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of ethnic pride up this way, uh, and just the old way of doing things. So, um, you know, it's gonna. It's it's definitely created a challenging situation for us. And everyone we talk to, when we tell them if they know the region, and we say, yeah, you know, we farm in Schuylkill County, they say, ooh, man, that's got that's a tough. That's got to be a tough sell up there where you are. But again, um, you know, we're getting a whole bunch of really great customers from, you know, old biddies, you know, just coming to look for some cabbage for their halukis to, um, you know, new young couples that are, you know, just gotten together, had their first baby and want to start off right or whatever. So, um, I don't know, it's changing up here. It, it is, but it's still a lot of um, competition, so to speak, with the old way of thinking where, you know, a grapefruit-sized pepper should be a nickel, you know. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.